Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. In the fall of 2005, a seismic wave appeared on the U.S. literary scene. It was a book that would take the world by storm. It would change the very way that we thought about fiction, and indeed, not only fiction, but our very selves. It was a work of literary genius, never seen before in the likes of which we have never seen since. The name of the book, of course, was Twilight. (laughs) Some Twilight fans in the room. You're not gonna like how much I'm about to make fun of the book. Just as a fair warning. The book Twilight, if you're unaware, is a young adult vampire romance novel, which, believe it or not, was already a genre before the book came out. I don't understand why, but it was. The book, which of course was later released as a movie, chronicled this love triangle made up of Bella, a human girl, Edward, a vampire, and Jacob, a werewolf. Quite a few Jacob fans in the room. Y'all don't know it yet, but you're about to prove my point. So this is great. This is working out great for me. And especially after the movie came out, there there arose a a substantial debate among moviegoers about which human slash creature Bella should have ended up with and the story. So first, there was Team Edward, Okay, Team Edward believed that a relationship with a vampire was the only way to go, obviously. Edward was intelligent, he he was understanding, he was patient, he was mysterious, he was protective. He also sparkled in the sunlight, which is a plus if you're into that sort of thing. (laughs) Team Jacob, on the other hand, yeah, sorry, I forgot to pause for the woos for Team Jacob. They made their case by insisting that Jacob, who just as a reminder is a werewolf, would have been a much kinder and more supportive boyfriend than vampire Edward was. He he encouraged Bella to achieve her own goals. For instance, when she really wanted to learn to ride a motorcycle. There's the added benefit of, of Bella not needing to change her human biology to be with Jacob because He isn't drawn to her blood like Edward was. These are the things you have to think about when you're in a relationship with a vampire. As I'm sure many of you are aware, obviously. But after the movie came out, uh, to me it was fascinating to, to watch the debates taking place in society around which person she should have ended up with. Articles were written and posted online arguing their case for Team Edward or Team Jacob. People would go to the theater dressed as the team that they belonged to. The actors in the movie were asked to weigh in in interviews with them uh, around which person she should have ended up with. Should we be Team Edward or Team Jacob? The world must know, right? Now, we could debate all day long whether Twilight is good literature 
or not. Uh, I've got no dog in that fight, but if I were a betting man, I would say no. (laughs) We could debate all day long whether it was good literature, but it's hard to deny that it struck a chord with quite a few people in the early 2000s. Whether it was good or not, it evidently was compelling to an awful lot of people. And I think the phenomenon of Twilight shows us something about what compelling writing does. Maybe not good writing, but compelling writing. You see, whether it's, it's fiction or nonfiction, compelling writing makes you do way more when you read it than just go check mark. I read that, I ingested some information, I'm done, on to the next thing. Compelling writing, it envelops you in a story. It it causes you to emotionally invest in what you just read, and maybe, just maybe, it causes you to read it and go, if I was Bella, who would I end up with? which is the question that keeps me up at night, by the way. (laughs) That is what compelling writing does. Good or not, it's what compelling writing does. And here's why I bring all of that up, other than the fact that it's just hilarious to think about us in the early 2000s, if you were around then, if you got into the craze then. The reason I bring it up is because in ways far more meaningful and significant than Twilight, I think the story that we're about to read this morning does at least some of the same thing. As goes Twilight, so goes the Bible, in just this one really specific way, I should clarify. What we find in Matthew chapter 2, I think, verses 1 through 12, is a historical account of how three different groups of people respond to the news of Jesus' birth. But a number of scholars have actually pointed out that in the way Matthew tells this particular story, he is inviting his readers to emotionally invest in the groups of people that he writes about. He gives us this threefold cast of characters in the story and then almost invites his audience to consider which one of these am I most like? How would I have responded and and how do I respond to Jesus myself? And I think we can actually learn an awful lot about ourselves by digging through the story with that in mind. So let's dive in, see what we can learn from Matthew chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn with me to that chapter if you haven't already. If you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that after a series of events, this story tells us that Joseph and Mary have given birth to a baby. They've named him Jesus as instructed by an angel to do, and they are now adjusting to their newfound life as a family of three. And that is where we read this, chapter two, starting in verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi came came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, so we're just two verses in and we have already met two of our three characters in the story. So we'll talk in detail about King Herod here in just a bit, but let's first ask who and what exactly are the Magi? sometimes called wise men. Believe it or not, we actually don't have a ton of rock-solid background on who these men were. But best we can piece together, the Magi were, were likely Persian astrologers. 
In other words, they studied the stars quasi-scientifically. And I say quasi-scientifically because especially by today's standards, what they did would be seen as a little more than superstition. For, for instance, these magi believed for some reason that the appearance of a new star in the night sky indicated the birth of a new king over that particular land that it appeared over. So when they see a new star appear over the land of Judea, they conclude that Judea has a new king. So they go looking for the king. Now, there probably wasn't anything particularly religious about the magi. They, they likely weren't God-fearing or God-worshipping people. In fact, on a few occasions, the Old Testament actually opposes any type of divination or fortune-telling, which includes astrology. In the book of Daniel, astrologers are depicted as complete pagans. They don't worship the true God of Israel at all. So these magi in our story likely are not operating out of any deep understanding of God or the scriptures. They just see a new star in the night sky, and they think that means that a new king has been born. So they do what they did any time a new king was born. They show up as a delegation, essentially, bearing gifts for the king. But since they don't know exactly where this king has been born in Judea, they go to the most likely place to find the king, the king's palace in Jerusalem. And it's there that they run into Herod and they ask him the question, where is the king? Which causes a bit of a problem, as we're going to see. So keep reading with me in the passage, picking it back up in verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So here's why this question, where can we find the king of the Jews, would have disturbed King Herod when he heard it. At the time, king of the Jews was his title. Herod was the king over the Jewish people. So, so the magi showing up on the scene and asking where they can find the one who was born king of the Jews would be a little bit like foreign dignitaries showing up here in the U.S. today and meeting President Biden and being like, yeah, but where's the real president? It's a very inflammatory thing to say whether or not they intended it to come across that way, right? And really, it's a little bit worse than that because while Herod was indeed the king, he was a fairly illegitimate king at the time. And because of that, he was quite paranoid about his power. He was constantly looking over his shoulder, even occasionally having members of his own family killed because he suspected that they were trying to take the throne away from him. So he's not a great dude, this guy Herod. You, you can imagine then when these astrologers show up out of the blue asking Herod about where the new king is, a king with his title, who isn't him, Herod's paranoia starts to kick into high gear. So in response, he hatches a plan. Take a look with me at verse four in the passage. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah, which was a word meaning long-awaited king, where, where the Messiah was to be born. So notice that Herod himself has no idea where the Old Testament says the Messiah will be born. He, he actually was pretty clueless when it came to the history and basic beliefs of the Jewish people that he ruled over. So he's got to call in the experts, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law to tell him how it all works. Here's what they say in response to that question, verse 5. 
In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet, i.e. Micah, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the chief priests enlightened Herod on where he might find this king based on Old Testament prophecy in the city of Bethlehem, which is nearby. Now, here is what is so odd to me about their response to Herod's question. And it's not just to me, really. Quite a few people smarter than me that have studied Matthew for longer than I have have pointed this out as well. These chief priests and teachers of the law, they, they were men who were steeped in the Old Testament of their day, including the Old Testament's repeated claims that a Messiah would one day arrive on the scene to save God's people. And yet... When they catch wind that this Messiah at least may have appeared just around five miles from where they currently are, they seem completely uninterested in finding out more. They don't ask more questions. They don't take a road trip real quick to Bethlehem just to check things out for themselves. They answer Herod's question very matter-of-factly, and they go about their lives. Does that seem weird to anybody else? Like, if you're in their situation, if you're in the chief priest's situation, doesn't your curiosity at least get the better of you for a moment? Even if you think the Magi are crazy, even if you think they're off their rockers at this point in the story, don't you at least go look into it? It seems so bizarre for them to have no interest in confirming or denying the arrival of the one the scriptures speak so much about. Indeed, the one that all of the scriptures were pointing to. I want you to remember that for later because I think it tells us a lot about the spiritual state of the chief priests and teachers of the law. For now, continue with me in the story. Here is Herod's response to what they say, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So Herod is obviously concealing his true motives at this point in the story. He doesn't actually want to go and worship this new king. He wants to eliminate him from contention, right? But he needs the Magi's help. So he sends them to find this new king and wants them to report back to him with an exact location of where he can find Jesus. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. The child here obviously being Jesus, who would have been somewhere around a year or two old at this point in the story. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, there in verse 10, the language that Matthew uses is really peculiar, most literally in the Greek language, it says the Magi, quote, rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Do you hear how redundant that sentence sounds? It's got more words in it than you need, right? It's like saying, I went to the grocery store to buy groceries with my money. You just use too many words, right? Or, or like, uh, I met an obnoxious Alabama fan and didn't like him. Like, you really only needed to say, I met an Alabama fan, Right? You could have left the other words out. But Matthew uses way more words than he needs. 
He, he doubles up on each idea in that sentence. He could have just said, they greatly rejoiced. But he doubles up both ideas. They, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Here's what's happening. Matthew is going over the top in the language that he uses to make sure that we are properly visualizing the response of the Magi to meeting this king, Jesus. They're, they're ecstatic at the sight. They're, they're throwing a party. They're celebrating, right? They're, they're so excited about finding this king that they can barely contain themselves at this moment in the story, which leads to the next verse, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the Magi are so ecstatic about meeting the one born king of Israel that they fall to their knees, they bow down, and they worship this child who is meant to be king. Then they open the gifts that they brought to him to give to the king like you would give to a king. Now, Interesting little tidbit here. Uh, if you know the story, how many magi were there? Anybody want to take a guess? You guys seem appropriately hesitant. I heard a couple people say three. But does it say anywhere in the story that there were three of these magi? Nope. It says there were three gifts. But back earlier in the passage, it actually said that there were so many magi that arrived in Jerusalem asking about where the king was that the whole city was disturbed as a result. So in my head, it's actually way more than three. It's maybe a couple dozen, could be even like a hundred of them that show up in order for the city of Jerusalem to be disturbed and stirred by it. But it does say that they brought three Gifts, And this could just even mean three types of gifts. There could have been multiples of each one. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it, it's hard for us to be completely positive about the significance of each of these gifts. And people have tried. I think there's some good guesses out there, but we truly don't know for sure. What we do know is that these were common gifts offered to royalty in Jesus' day and age. So, so the Magi here are recognizing that the one they have found is indeed a king. Namely, he's the new king of the Jewish people. And the gifts that they give him reflect that they believe that. So then, after worshiping Jesus, giving their gifts, and visiting with Jesus' family, we read this, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So much like Joseph's dream in last week's passage, God uses a dream to interrupt someone's normal course of action. This time, he tells the Magi not to return to King Herod, so they don't. They worship the king and they go home a different way, avoiding Jerusalem and King Herod on their way back. So there's our story for this week. Now, as I said earlier today, uh, this is a story about how three groups of people respond to the arrival of King Jesus. So here are our characters, if you didn't already piece it together from the story, we have three. King Herod, the chief priests, and the Magi. Those are our primary characters in this story. And I think these three groups actually demonstrate 
three very different postures towards Jesus. And, and specifically, I'll say, towards the kingship of Jesus. His authority, his presence, his power, all of that. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I think Matthew includes these three characters in his telling of the Christmas story because he wants us to at least consider if our posture towards Jesus resembles any of theirs. So I thought it might be good for us to spend an extended amount of time on each of these characters and see if the Holy Spirit has anything that he wants to speak to us for our good this morning. Make sense? So first, let's take a look at King Herod in the story. King Herod is our first character. If I were to use one word to summarize King Herod's posture towards Jesus, it would be this, hostility. Hostility towards Jesus. Upon finding out from the Magi that there is a new king, Herod immediately goes into self-preservation mode. Right? He starts figuring out how he might locate this new king and eliminate the threat that he poses to Herod's kingdom. And in next week's passage, we're actually going to find out that Herod is going to go to some pretty extreme measures in order to eliminate this new king. But I want you to think with me about Herod's situation for just a moment. As king, Herod had likely grown accustomed to a certain way of life, right? certain status level in society, certain income level, certain comforts and conveniences that came with him being king, a certain ability to do things his own way and call his own shots and to reject anything or anyone that interfered with him living life that way. That, that's what kings get to do, at least in this day and age, right? Kings get to do whatever they want to do. But if there is a new king on the scene, well, then all of that could vanish, for Herod. It, it could all be taken away from him in an instant. He could lose his way of life. He could lose his comforts, his conveniences. He, he could lose his right to do things his way and only his way. And that is a possibility, evidently, that Herod is unwilling to entertain in the story. But here's what I would point out to you. Um, when you think real critically about it, Herod's mindset isn't very far from how many of us prefer to approach our life. Are we not told pretty regularly in our society that we can be whoever we want to be and do whatever we want to do? And then are we not told by society that if anyone interferes with what we want to do or who we want to be, that we should just shake the haters off and do it anyway? I mean, if Taylor Swift said it, it's got to be true, right? <laughs> Unexpected an amen right there, but that's great, yeah. Um, are we not told that if anyone makes us feel uncomfortable or puts undue expectations on us, that we should just, quote, eliminate those toxic people from our life? Are we not taught to believe that any external source of authority over our life is inherently suspect and should be done away with or bare minimum rebelled against or picked apart? You see, I think you and I are often trained to operate as kings of our own making. And hear me, if that is how you choose to go about your life, Jesus' status as king will always feel like a threat to you. 
So have there ever been moments in your life where the Holy Spirit presses on you about something? So, so where he, he encourages you to move in a certain direction or to do something or to not do something, and, and in your heart you just respond with no. No, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to deny myself that experience, that comfort, that relationship, that happiness. I, I'm not going to do that. Are there, are there ever moments where your knee-jerk response to God is just no? Where, where you respond by thinking to yourself, I just don't think God would ever ask me to do that. I don't think God would ever ask me to say no to that sort of thing. I don't think God would ever ask me to miss out on that sort of thing. I, I hear people say things all the time as a pastor like, well, I could never believe in a God who would ask me to blank, whatever that is for you. Or I, I could never worship a God who blank. And listen, I, I understand where those statements are coming from. There are things about God to be sure that are difficult to comprehend, that are difficult to understand, that are difficult to get on board with. I understand all of that. But at the same time, I, I hope we hear what we are implying when we utter statements like that. When we say, I could never believe in a God who would blank. What we're saying essentially with that statement is my intellect, my moral reasoning is correct. And for me to worship God, trust God, he must first agree with me. I'll worship Jesus as king for sure, as long as he gets on board with my kingship first. See, that at its core is hostility to Jesus. And it turns out there's at least a little of Herod's posture in each of us. There's a piece of us that naturally resists any rival claims to the throne of our life. And I think we've got to admit that if we're going to do anything about it, if we're going to see Jesus correctly for who he is. And here's what I'll show you from the story. If the life of Herod is any indication in this passage, that hostility towards Jesus can take you to some pretty dark places. When your own autonomy is worshipped above all else in your life, you will, do, you will do most anything to eliminate threats to that way of life. That is the hostile posture of Herod at work in our hearts. That's the first posture. Let's look at the second one found in the passage, which is that of the chief priests. The chief priests. Here's the word that I would use to describe their posture in the story. It's indifference. Indifference. The chief priest and the teachers of the law in the story are indifferent towards Jesus. They're the ones who should be most interested in the arrival of the Messiah, right? They spent their lives, their careers, studying the scriptures in detail about this moment, and yet they seem to have so very little interest in Jesus' arrival on the scene at all. There is no curiosity, there's, there's no draw to go and check things out to see if it's so, just disinterest from the chief priests. So notice, the chief priests and teachers of the law had a knowledge of the scriptures, but they lacked any substantial interest in the one that the scriptures pointed them to. 
Jesus actually sums up the posture of the chief priest later in his life when he says this to a very similar group of people in John chapter 5. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, that was the problem with the chief priest, indifference, disinterest towards Jesus. And this, too, is a danger for us today, no doubt about it. To me, a significant risk for followers of Jesus today, especially here in the Bible Belt, is to know just enough about Jesus in order to grow disinterested in him. And worse, to not think of that disinterest in Jesus as a problem that needs addressing. I've heard some people refer to this with the term gospel inoculation. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. I like it because it makes you sound smart when you say it, gospel inoculation. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of inoculation. Basically, it's the idea behind a lot of vaccines. So, so generally, the way that a vaccine works is that it introduces just enough of a disease or a virus into your system that your system learns how to fight it when it comes along for real. It, it's a great idea, great concept when it comes to vaccines. It's not good at all when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. I, I think some people know just enough about Jesus to become inoculated to ever knowing more. They know just enough to think that there's nothing else they need to know. Just enough to where their system actually resists any further knowledge of or relationship with the God of the universe. I've got some friends who, who work regularly with Muslim populations, and they tell me that one thing Muslims have a really hard time with consistently is how Christians can be so nominal and indifferent towards their faith. They find it so baffling how Christians can believe some of the revolutionary things that this book teaches and yet remain so detached from all of those things, so unchanged by it, so unmotivated, uninspired by it. So can I ask you this morning, do you find yourself regularly indifferent towards Jesus? Do, do you know just enough about God to be completely okay never knowing more about him? Does it feel like you've been inoculated to the gospel? Are, are you, like the chief priest in the story, disinterested in the one that the scriptures say so much about? speak so highly of? Do you, do you feel no consistent draw, no longing in you towards God? Do, do you feel no pull in your heart towards interacting with God, conversing with God, hearing from God? And listen, I, I want to be clear here. I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. We all go through seasons as followers of Jesus where we are less excited about following Jesus than we are in other seasons, Right? That's part of the Christian experience. If you've been following Jesus for longer than a couple weeks, you've probably experienced that. There are always seasons that are less good than others. But, but here's my question for you. When you go through those seasons, do those seasons bother you? Like, are you bothered by it when you go through those seasons? Do, 
Are you uncomfortable with them? When you're in one of those seasons where you just don't feel um, like you want to know God, like you want to get to know him at all, when you're in those seasons, do you want them to be over? Or have they become completely normal for you? Nothing to be troubled about at all when they happen. Followers of Jesus may go through seasons, even extended seasons of indifference towards God, but followers of Jesus never grow comfortable with those seasons. They never think they're normal. Because here's what I'll tell you again from the story. Often, indifference like that towards Jesus can just be a short stopover on the way towards hostility to Jesus. You see, this generation of chief priests that we read about in Matthew chapter two, they were just indifferent towards the Messiah. But the generation after them of chief priests, they would seek to kill Jesus, just like Herod. If you settle into disinterest towards the things of God, it is only a matter of time before you become hostile towards him. That is the danger in a posture of indifference. But then we have the final posture towards Jesus in the story, which is that of the Magi. How much we can learn from the Magi in this story. Here's how I would describe the posture that they took towards Jesus. It was that of adoration. Adoration for Jesus. So remember the language that Matthew used to describe them once they encountered Jesus in the story. He said, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they traveled far and wide to come and find Jesus. And then when they arrived there, they fell flat on their face and worshiped him. They, they brought gifts, signs of homage and recognition and honor towards the king. The Magi adored Jesus and they recognized him as the king that he was. Now, Here's what's fascinating to me about that response to Jesus by the Magi. They likely weren't doing any of this because they thought that this child was God. They likely didn't believe any of that or even have a framework for believing something like that. Remember, the Magi were most likely pagans. They believed there were many gods. At most, this was them acknowledging that they believed Jesus was one of those many gods. So this isn't a conversion story about the Magi. The Magi aren't becoming the very first Christians in this moment when they come across Jesus. They're not coming to know Jesus as the one true God of the universe. None of that. But at the same time, Matthew portrays them as being much nearer to discovering who Jesus is than Herod was. They have a more keen sense of Jesus' identity than the chief priests in the story do. They're a lot closer to getting it than either of the other two characters in the story. Matthew suggests by his narrative that the king of Israel and the Bible experts of his day would have been better off if they had taken the posture of pagan astrologers. Because the Magi's response, as incomplete as it is in terms of saving faith, means that they have come to one important conclusion about Jesus' identity. Do you know what it is? That he is greater than them. That this young child is who the star told them that he was. He is the new king of Israel, and therefore, he is more significant than any one of them. 
more mighty than they are, more important than they are. And it is that belief alone that prompts their worship and their gifts and their exceedingly great joy at having encountered this king. The magi respond with adoration for the child standing before them. So can I ask you one final question? Would you describe your posture towards Jesus as one of adoration? When you reflect on who Jesus is, do do you experience exceedingly great joy towards him? Do you respond with some amount of awe and wonder and reverence at who he is and what he's capable of? Do you marvel at the mystery of the one greater than, more important than, more significant than you? I do wonder sometimes if if we have lost that sense of awe and adoration before God. Sometimes when I hear people talk about their relationship with God, it's like they talk about him like he's just a set of ideas that they agree with. A, A tidy little collection of beliefs that they adhere to. And don't get me wrong, ideas and beliefs about God are important. They matter. They matter tremendously. But I do hope we remember at the end of the day, God is not a collection of ideas or a set of beliefs. He is a person to be known and adored and ultimately worshiped. I think of the famous song that we usually sing this time of year around Christmas, right? Oh, come let us adore him. Come let us adore him, not come let us think about him, not come let us deliberate about him, not let us come agree with some of the things that he said that we think kind of fit our cultural moment to one degree or another, not let's come use him as ammunition for winning arguments with other people. It says come let us adore him. Worship him, stand in awe and wonder before him, gaze at his beauty and his glory and his mercy and his compassion towards people like us. Following Jesus starts with adoring Jesus. Seeing him as far greater than us and then responding to that reality accordingly. Here's why I think that matters practically speaking. If we do not see Jesus as greater than us, there won't be much reason for adjusting anything in our life around him. If he's not greater than us, he might be convenient for for referencing when we need a little bit of extra help or a little bit of extra advice in our life, but he won't be worth orienting our entire lives around. He he won't be worth inconveniencing ourselves for when the moments get tough. He won't be worth suffering for, certainly. He won't be worth interrupting our regularly scheduled plans for. But listen, if he is greater than us, if he is more powerful, more significant, more mighty than we are, then that means he is worth everything. He's worth it all. And that understanding of Jesus is what creates adoration in us towards him. So when I think of what it means to adore something, right now, I think of my three-year-old daughter, Nora. Some of you have met Nora. You know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that don't, 
Uh, Christmas is obviously right around the corner now, and I feel like this is the first year that Nora has like truly understood all that happens at Christmas, or at least that it's obvious that she understands it all. So the other day, she looks at the presents underneath our Christmas tree, and she said, who are those for? And when I told her that some of them were for her and her brother, she said, oh, really? And I said, yes. And then she said, for us to open? And I said, yes. And then she said, on Christmas morning? And I said, yes. And then she said, and play with them? And I said, yes again. And then she said, and keep them for my whole life? And I was like, maybe, unless they get lost. But yes, yes, that's the idea. Her voice just kept getting higher and higher in its pitch, right? It, it was like she was so excited about understanding how the whole gift-giving thing happened that she was almost hyperventilating over the joys of Christmas, right? So it's like Buddy the Elf, but as a three-year-old girl. <laughs> that, that's my daughter in a nutshell. And after I had that interaction with her, I remember I, I had to get in the car and go somewhere. And, and on my drive there, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, man, I don't get that excited about anything. <laughs> right? Like, I can't remember the last time I had that level of excitement about something in my life. And I, I mean, you guys know this. Part of that's just adulthood, right? You get more and more cynical <laughs> about things. Everything feels like maybe it's a deception in some way, and like we have, to, we have to prevent ourselves from getting our hopes up too much, and so we just become cynical about things, right? But the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I, I think that response, that level of excitement, that level of adoration, that, that's actually a normal human response to things that are worthy of it, right? I think we have to learn to be cynical, that's something that life does to us, that disappointments in life does to us along the way. But adoration is actually a very normal human response, as anyone who's ever been around a child younger than five knows, right? It's a natural human response. The instinctive human response when we encounter something worthy of adoration is to adore it, to, to respond with awe and wonder and excitement about it. That's normal. And so I wonder if the magi in the story responded that way to Jesus because in their own small, incomplete way, they recognized that the one they had encountered in that moment was worthy of that response. And I wonder if you and I took a little more time to, to gaze at the beauty and the glory and the worth of Jesus if we wouldn't have a similar response to them. Maybe even more so, right? Because we understand way more of the story than they did. I wonder if we took the time to, to slow down and just remember the God who became human to save his people from their sins, if we wouldn't respond with all as well. If we took the time to recognize this child, Jesus, as a demonstration of the unpredictable, unbelievable, immeasurable love of God, 
if we wouldn't respond with wonder at the type of love that truly is and what it means for us on a daily basis. I wonder if we actually took a long, hard look at Jesus if we wouldn't respond with adoration too. So we're gonna head to the tables here in just a bit. We're gonna take communion together. If you're new around here, that's just one specific way that we as a church family pause to remember and reflect on who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us, to stand amazed at the idea that this child lying in a manger would one day give up his flesh and blood to save us from our sins, although we didn't deserve it. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you anytime during the next few songs to head to the tables and do that with us as a sign of awe and wonder and adoration for who Jesus is. And my prayer is that, especially in the coming weeks leading up to Christmas, we all grow in adoration for King Jesus because he's worthy of it. Let me pray for us.